Welcome to the First Baptist Church Brunswick podcast. Join us as we desire to lead people into a deep and thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, um, would you please take them out and go to the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is where we are. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18 this morning. As a couple of weeks ago, or several weeks ago, excuse me, we started this series um, that uh, we've titled Joyful, a walk through the book of Philippians where we are learning how uh, to uh, have joy no matter the circumstances of our lives. And we are uh, working our way verse by verse in this great book, this book that is just full of joy. It is the the happiest book in the Bible, and um, I tell you, if there's one thing that we need in our world, it's more joy. Can I get an amen on that one? It is joy. Uh, Well, as I was preparing for uh, this message uh, this week, I came across a story thought it was really good. It's a story of a young boy um, who jumped into his dad's lap. And uh, he, he jumped into his dad's lap and he said, hey, daddy, I just got to tell you, I am just so full of joy. And of course, this brought uh, the dad's uh, heart, uh, filled his heart with joy. And, and um, he said, that's just great, son. I'm glad your heart is full of joy. And then his son jumped down out of his lap and went outside to play with his bigger brother. About an hour later, this young son came back into his dad's lap, jumped into his lap, and you could tell. You could tell that something had changed. You could tell that he was on the verge of tears and he was just angry. And the dad looked at his son and said, son, what, uh, uh, where did all your joy go? And the son said, well, dad, Bubba made it leak all out. <laughs> Bubba made it leak all out. Would you all agree that sometimes our joy leaks out? It is easy for our joy to leak out, and it's easy for us to, uh, I think, spring a leak. It's easy to spring a leak when it comes to joy. I mean, you know this. It can happen very, very quickly. You and I, we can be very, very, very happy, but the next second, because of a phone call or maybe because of what somebody said to you or maybe when somebody cuts you off in traffic, uh, you can spring a leak of joy, and it is very, very easy to lose the joy, 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 joy. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to lose our joy, but this morning, it's really easy to be joyful because the Georgia Bulldogs just put on a show yesterday. Yep. And for me, it's even more joyful because my Texas Tech Red Raiders won another game. Yes. And so to the lone West Virginia fan in our congregation, Josh Parker, I'm sorry. (laughs) But it feels good to win. It's easy to be joyful when things are going your way. But when things don't go your way, it is extremely difficult to be joyful. Well, the book of Philippians teaches us that our joy does not depend upon our circumstances. Let's say that phrase together. It's on the screen. Our joy does not depend upon our circumstances. So this morning, as we work our way through verses 12 through 18, I want us to look at how you and I can have a joyful heart, how we can be joyful Christians 
no matter all the things that can happen in our life that cause us to spring a leak. How can we remain and be joyful Christians? Well, let's look at our text this morning, beginning in verse number 12. We'll read it, and then we're going to pull out some points that I think are very applicable to us this morning. Verse number 12, follow along in your copy of God's Word, or the words are on the screen behind me. Verse 12, Paul begins with this. So then, my beloved. Now, out in the margin of your Bibles, I think you should do this one. I think you need to underline the phrase, so then, and in the margin of your Bibles, write this, term of conclusion. Paul is giving us a conclusion. So whenever you read Scripture, and this is important for us when you have your quiet time, when you study the Bible, and you come across a term of conclusion, what are some words that are term of conclusions? You have uh, words like therefore, or as a result, or so that, or so then. Whenever you see these terms of conclusion, your mind needs to go into an investigative reporter mindset. You need to ask yourself the question, why is the author writing this, and what does it mean for me? So Paul, in the big picture of the book of Philippians, he says, so then, which means he is going to give us a conclusion based on something he has already said. So what has he already said in this book that we've been studying? You go all the way back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and Paul has already told us uh, that we need to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, of the same love, um, being united in spirit, uh, being intent on one purpose. Paul says um, you need to be united as believers in Christ. In Philippians 2, 5, Paul tells us and reminds us that we need to have the same attitude in ourselves that is found in Christ Jesus. And then last week we looked at verses 6 through 11, and Paul gives us this great Christological uh, thought, this great idea about who Jesus Christ is. And in this he talks about the, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Meaning, if you remember this from verses 6 through 11 from last week, we remember this, that Jesus, um, he, he did not consider equality with something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. He was made in the image of man and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to obedience, even to, even to death, to death on the cross. And because of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation, it says this, that God bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow that is in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And Paul says, this is who Jesus is, and this is who you need to live your life like. So in verse 12, he says, so then. And now he's just going to tell us how we are going to live our lives again. He's going to give us an example. he give us an example of Jesus. Now he's going to flesh it out for us. Verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, so that, there's another term of conclusion, that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in whom you appear as lights in the world. Stop there for just a second. Verse number 15, I love the last line that says, as you appear as lights in the world. The New International Version says, you can shine like stars. I like that. You shine like stars. Now, Growing up in Texas, 
As a kid, you learned the song. It's actually, it is, it is built into you. You learned the song, Deep in the Heart of Texas. Are you all familiar with that? You know the first line, the stars at night are big and bright. God, thank you for allowing Georgians to sing deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> this is so good. This is so good. So verse 15, I, I, I automatically think of deep in the heart of Texas, and at one point this week I actually thought about titling this message, How to Be a Star-Studded Christian. I didn't think that would be a very appropriate, but uh, verse 16, continue reading our text, and we'll come back to and make some points. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, So that, there's another term of conclusion, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Well, this morning I want to share with you five ways from our text that we can remain joyful Christians in the midst of some difficult circumstances. Look back at verse number 12, and we'll work our way back through this a little bit more in depth. Write this down. Number one, joyful Christians do their part. Believers in Christ, those who have joy in their lives and they exhibit a, a joyful life, our text says that they do their part. Now, in verse 12, there are two things that Paul says, as believers in Christ, you do. There's two things that you do that will bring you joy. If you do these two things and you're doing your part, a byproduct is you are going to have joy in the Lord. The first thing that Paul says is this, is that you as a believer in Christ, you remain obedient to Jesus Christ. In the first part of verse 12, he says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always, what's that word? Obeyed. He says, if you obey Christ, you will have joy. You are going to remain joyful. And what I love about this word obedient or obey, it's the Greek word hupo okuo. Hupo means to be under, okuo means to hear. So to obey literally means to hear under, which means that you submit yourself to an authority's voice and you humble yourself, you hear it, you listen to it, and you obey it. So when you obey, Paul says, so then, my beloveds, just as you have always obeyed, meaning Philippians, you've obeyed in the past, now I want you to continue to obey, which means you simply submit to the authority of God in your life. Obedience. Obedience. Charles Stanley, whom I had the opportunity to serve under for about a year and a half, Charles Stanley often used this phrase, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Isn't that good? Obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. Many of us as believers, we struggle with obedience because we don't know what the consequences are going to be. But Scripture says, obey God and then leave everything to Him. One of my favorite hymns of all times is titled, Trust and Obey. You remember this, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but what? To trust and obey. And so Paul, very quickly here in verse 12, says this. He says, so then, my beloved, 
He's being a pastor to this church at Philippi. He says, beloved, obey. Obey not just in my presence, but obey when I'm not with you. Obey the heavenly Father. One of the things I love about this text, what I love about verse number 12 is this, is that Paul is emphasizing obedience over knowledge. Do you see that? He's emphasizing obedience. He's not saying, so then, my beloveds, continue to grow in knowledge. Now, do we need to grow in knowledge? Absolutely, we need to grow in knowledge. But Paul says, you need to obey. And I know this as a follower of Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have if you never obey. That's what you already know. Many of us struggle in our lives because we aren't obeying what God has already asked us to do. And you and I will never grow in our maturity. We will never become more and more like Christ until we obey what God has already asked us to obey. Many of us, and I'm in this, I'm in this boat as well, many of us, God will ask us to do something and we don't obey it, but we go back to studying the Word going, I want more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge, and you gain more knowledge, but here's what happens. When you gain more knowledge and you don't obey, you just become fat and lazy. Now, I'm not talking physically, although I guess that could be the case. But spiritually, this is what happens. When we fail to obey, we become lazy Christians and we do not grow and we do not mature in our faith. And so Paul says, listen, I've given you the example of Christ. And you just go back in the previous verses. Paul says this, he says, believers know this, Jesus Christ who is at the highest of highs, he humbled himself to obedience to the point of death. Meaning Jesus, our example, at the highest of highs, willingly obeyed his father, came down to the earth, appeared as a man, took on the form of a bondservant, and he was obedient. Even obedient to the point of sacrifice, even obedient to the point of, of pain, obedient to the point of suffering, but he was obedient. And as a result of Jesus' obedience, here's what God did. God exalted him. And if God exalted Jesus because he humbled himself and he obeyed, will not God do the same thing for you? Yes, he will. You look at what Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, humble yourselves under the hand of God, and in due time, he will exalt you. You want to remain joyful, it begins with obedience. And the second thing in verse number 12, he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look at that last part of verse number 12. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Greek word order in this is actually pretty interesting. The Greek word order is actually this, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, meaning this, that, that you need to be in awe of who God is and be in awe of the things that he has given you. Now, this text has, can be so confusing to many people. Notice that our text, notice that Paul does not say work for your salvation. Everybody see that? You all with me this morning? He does not say work for your salvation. Folks, we need to understand that you cannot work for your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. You don't even deserve your salvation. So Paul does not say work for your salvation. Because in Ephesians, Paul says, it is by God's grace that you have been saved through faith and not by works. And so folks, we cannot earn our salvation. You don't deserve it. 
But Paul says you need to work out your salvation. You work it out. So if we work out our salvation in verse number 12, that means that something has to already be in us. Amen? If we're going to work it out, and literally it means to to live out what is already in you, Paul is saying that if you're going to work out your salvation, you need to work out what God has already put in you. Here's a way that that maybe to help you understand. Um, how many of you have ever made a puzzle, put a puzzle together before? Okay, 17 of you. Good, good. I think most of you have. You didn't want to raise your hand. That's fine. But when you put a puzzle together, let me ask you this question. When you put a puzzle together, did you create the puzzle? No. It was already what? It was already created. What you and I do when we put a puzzle together is this, we work out the puzzle. You take the pieces from here to here and you start in the corners, right? You do the border, right? You, you, get, you get a framework for it and you put the pieces together. And so that when you put the pieces together, you work it out. And when you've worked out the puzzle and it all comes together, you see the big picture. But you had no work in making or creating the puzzle. What you did is you just worked it out what was already there. And so Paul says, listen, you want to be joyful, continue to be joyful, Philippians, continue to be joyful, uh, believers in Christ. You obey, but secondly, you also, you work out your salvation, meaning you live out what somebody, what someone has already put in. So joyful Christians, they do their part, which means this church, and, and really I could end here. And if I did, that would be the earliest I've ever finished a message in my life. But listen, believers, God's Word says this. You want to be joyful in the midst of circumstances that maybe aren't what you want them to be. Here's what Paul says. Here's what God says through Paul. He says this. You do your part. You're responsible for the spiritual maturity in your life. Obedience, and you work out your salvation. Now, if we stopped there, this would be all about works-related salvation. But look at verse number 13 and write this down. Joyful Christians depend upon God to do his part. So you do your part, and then God does his part. Are you with me? Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher um, that stirred America's heart to to the great awakening, said in these verses, in verses 12 through 13, he said this. The 12 and 13 are the greatest passages in all of Scripture related to sanctification. Sanctification being made into the image of God. Look at that first part of uh, 13, that first phrase where it says, For God is at work in you. Circle that word work. Circle that word work. And in the margin of your Bible, write this, write the Greek word. The Greek word is energos, E-N-E-R-G-O-S. It's where you and I, we get our English word energy. So here's what Paul says. So, for it is God who energizes you. It is God who is in you. You work out your salvation, how? Because God is in you. Meaning this, you working out your salvation, you're not doing it in your own power. It is God in you. It is God who is working it in you. And folks, that ought to bring us great joy. Because just listen to what the Bible says. The Bible tells us in the book of Colossians, 
The Bible tells us in the book of Colossians that we are hidden in Christ with God. The Bible says that Christ is in me. The Bible says I am in Christ, that we're hidden with Christ in God, and that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's key to our understanding of Christianity, right? Christ is in me. I am in Christ. I am hidden in God through Christ, and the Holy Spirit seals me, which means this. If the devil ever wants to get to you, he has to go through the Holy Trinity because you are hidden in Christ. Christ is in you. You are in Christ, and the Holy Spirit seals you. So when Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you, you have this whole army of God who is working in you. Not only is God in you, Paul says in Romans 8.31 that God is for us. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Folks, is that good news or what? If God is for you, Who can be against you? And Paul says, listen, church, I've given you this commands. Conduct yourselves in the manner of the worthy gospel. Have this attitude in Christ Jesus. Make my joy complete by being united. Here's the example of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do. You obey. You work out your salvation. But know this. It is God in you that is doing all the work. But you're responsible. You're responsible. Which means you practice spiritual disciplines. Why? Because then it allows God to work in you. And how does God do this? How does God do this? Look at the end of verse number 13. Are y'all still with me this morning? How does God do this? Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. So how does God work in you? And if God is working in you, what does he do? Well, Paul tells us God does two things in you. He changes your will, which means the mind. God changes your mind. He changes your want-tos. How many of you have a testimony? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have a testimony that you were going opposite of the ways of God, you were living uh, horribly, but then God radically saved you, then all of a sudden he changed your want-tos. He changed your desires. That's what God does. How does God work in you? He changes your want-tos. He changes your mind about things, and then he changes uh, how you want to work. He changes both to will and to work for his good pleasure, meaning he changes your mind and he changes your desires so that as a believer in Christ, you only want to please one person, and that person is God the Father. And the only way that you and I can have everlasting joy is that we please one person, and that's Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you a question. You may be having a, uh, you may have sprung a leak and your joy is non-existent right now. Well, let me ask you this question. Who are you trying to please? Who are you trying to please? See, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So number one, joyful Christians do the part. Number two, joyful Christians allow God to do his part. And number three, you're going to love this one. If you thought the first two were great, and I can tell by the smiles on your faces, number three is going to knock your socks off. You ready for this one? Look at your name and say, I'm ready. Number three says, joyful Christians do not complain. (laughs) Out in the margins of your Bible write, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Joyful Christians do not complain. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, That Greek word grumbling, um, it's where we get our English word gong. 
Anybody remember the gong show? And that deep, you hit that gong and it's just a deep reverberating sound. Paul says, do all things without gong, without, without grumbling. And, and it actually has this idea of muttering under your breath. This word disputing in Greek, it literally means that disputing means you love to argue because you are always right and everybody else is wrong. Why don't you just point to somebody right now? Can you get an amen on that one? And what I love about this word disputing, I I think this is a great visual for us since we live on the coast. This idea of disputing, it carries with it the idea of an undercurrent. We all know what an undercurrent is. An undercurrent, it pulls you in and it sucks you under. You get the visual? It pulls you in and then it sucks you under. And this is what Paul says, believers in Christ, you do all things without grumbling or without disputing. I don't know about you, but that that scares me. Because I think of my own life and my times where I have complained and grumbled and argued about stuff that really don't make a difference. Are you with me? Anybody ever done that before? Where you complain and you argue? One commentary said this, don't sweat the small stuff as law number one of life. Law number two is, it's all small stuff. <laughs> Most of it is, right? I think one thing that we need to understand, why is Paul writing, do all things without grumbling or disputing? Well, He's telling us that because, number one, he's just given the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus who emptied himself of everything. Who took on the form of a bondservant. Who became like us. Humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross and obedience. I think back to what The prophet Isaiah said about Jesus and prophesying about his crucifixion, he said this about Jesus. He never said a mumbling word. Do you remember that? Jesus Christ, the one true perfect son of God, did nothing wrong but was treated treated horrifically. And the Bible says that he never said a mumbling word. And Paul has just given us the example of Christ. And it comes on the heels of the example of Jesus' humility and his, and, his, and, his, and his exaltation. And he says, believers in Christ, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now remember the reason, one of the reasons Paul's writing this is because in the Philippian church there was grumbling and there was disputing. And they were grumbling and disputing over the small stuff. Too many times we get wrapped around the axle of things that really don't matter in life. We get so frustrated about things where it's our preferences over this, over that, and we lose sight of the bigger issue that there are thousands of people who are dying without Jesus Christ, and if they don't know Jesus before they die, they spend eternity separated from him. But instead, we would rather argue about the non-essentials in life, and we'd rather tear everybody down. We'd rather say things about them. We'd rather go onto social media and say things that harm and hurt people. And here comes Paul says, look at the example of Christ. I mean, I'm just thinking of Jesus on the cross. 
If there was ever one person in all of humanity who could have and have the right to say something to people, it's Jesus on the cross. When they, when they took him and they spread his arms out and they took a hammer and a nail and they slammed it into his hands, both sides, in his feet, stuck a spear in his side, put a crown of thorns on his head. If there's anybody in all of creation who could have told people you were wrong and you are messed up people, it's Jesus. But do you remember what he said on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Church, if we would follow that example, when we would follow example, we would look more and more like Christ, which is what Paul wants from us. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Joyful Christians do their part. Joyful Christians depend upon God to do his part. Joyful Christians, they do not complain. And number four, joyful Christians will, be, will live differently to make a difference. Doesn't that make sense after following the example of Christ? Are you with me this morning? Are you with me? Philippians 2.15 says this. Here's why you don't complain. Here's why you don't argue. Here's why you don't grumble that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, that you'll be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you as pure as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Paul says this, when you do not complain, when you do not argue, when you do not dispute, here's what you do. You prove yourselves to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Hello. You prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. You prove yourselves to be God, uh, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so what Paul says, when you live differently, you will make a difference. When you look different than the world, you're going to make a difference. When you don't respond like the world responds, you will make a difference. When you don't act like the world, you will make a difference. When you act and speak and talk like Jesus, you will make a difference. And Paul gives us two examples. He says, here's why you need to live differently, because you are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That word crooked in Greek is scolios, which is where we get our English what word? Scoliosis. What does that mean? That means a curvature, a curvature of her spine. I remember in elementary school growing up, and uh, once a year we had to be checked for scoliosis. Do you all remember this? You'd have to go into the nurse's office, bend over, and then they would check your spine, right? They would see if it was crooked. Y'all remember that? They would check to see if it was crooked. What they're doing is they're measuring that curve against something. There's a standard. And then if your spine curved outside of the standard, it meant this, your spine was crooked. But it's only crooked when it's measured against something that's straight. So Paul says, you don't complain, you don't argue, you don't dispute, you don't grumble. You do this, you'll prove yourselves to be different than everybody else because you're living in the midst of a crooked, scolios generation. And then he says, a, pervert, a perverse generation. The word perverse literally means this, you choose to do that which is illicit. Folks, there's people in our lives that sometimes they're just 
Sometimes people are just crooked, scoliosis, because that's how that happens. But then there's a great majority of people who are crooked because they made a bad choice. Are you with me? But how do we point that out to people? How do you point that out to people? You can only know something is crooked when you put a straight stick next to it. And the straight stick in the world are believers in Jesus Christ. When you live a pure, true, holy life, you don't respond as the world. You don't treat others like the world. Here's what you're doing. You are a straight stick, and the world will see that you're different. And too many of us, and I'm in this category as well, too many of us, we try to argue people out of their crookedness. And God says, show them. Live for them. So that your life would show them that which is crooked and that which is straight. And Paul says, do your part. Let God do his part. Don't complain. You live differently. And then here's the last one. Joyful Christians offer their lives in sacrifice and service. Let me just read this text to you. Verse 16, Paul says, holding fast to the word of life so that, there's that term of conclusion, in the day of Christ... I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. What Paul is saying is this, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. And and I'm being poured out because of your sacrifice and your service. Meaning Paul, as a pastor, poured his life into them so that they would sacrifice and serve others. And Paul says, and I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that. You want to be joyful. You want to have a joyful life. Paul says this, and the rest of Scripture teaches us this, that you need to sacrifice and serve others. It's not about you. That's hard to hear when you're going through difficult things. But I know this from personal experience, I know this from observing it in your life, and I know it from Scripture, that joy only comes when you serve other people. I know in my own personal life, there have been times where I've been down in the dumps. Anybody ever been down in the dumps before? One of the best ways to get out of the down of the dumps is this, you go serve somebody else. You get off the couch, you get out from behind the computer, and you go serve somebody. You put your smartphone down, you get away from technology, and you go serve. And when you do that, joy comes. And as the Bible says, joy will come in the morning. So church, how can you be joyful? you got to do your part. Then let God do his part. Don't complain. You live differently, and then you give your life to other people. I pray that you can make that commitment today. You know, I started this message with a statement. It's easy to spring a leak regarding our joy. Over the past few weeks, I've had a slow leak in my front right tire of my car. 
It's frustrating to wake up in the morning to take my girls to school, to turn the car on and then see that tire gauge light come on. It's frustrating. But when that tire gauge pressure light comes on, I have three options. I can ignore it, drive on, pretend that I don't have a leaky tire, but I know that that will end up in disaster. Second thing I can do is I can put some more air in the tire and then pretend it never leaked. Or number three, I put some air in it, and then I go get it fixed. Many of you today may have a, have a leak in your joy. And you have three options. You can ignore the leak, and your life will continue as it is. Number two, you can put air in your walk, but, but never change your life. Keep doing the same thing you're doing, and you're going to get the same result. Or number three, you put air in your walk, and you give complete control to Jesus Christ. And the way you give complete control to Jesus Christ is you humbly bow your life to Jesus and what he did on the cross. We will all have leaks in our life. We all will. But what we do next makes all the difference in the world. And so I beg you, church, to not ignore the leak. I beg you not to just fix the leak, but then continue to live in a way that you want to live that really actually caused the leak. But number three, I encourage you to to get that leak fixed by bowing your knee at Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. Can you do that, church? Can you do that, church? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are able, that you are able to fix the leaks in our life. And I pray that you would do so this morning. And I pray for somebody today that they would bow their knee to Christ at the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. I pray that we would bow our knee to you and allow you to take control of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.